Hey friends, you know it's not too soon to add Quantum Programmer to your LinkedIn profile. Maria Mikhailova is here to show me the workflow for developing a quantum application using QSharp and the Quantum Development Kit. We'll go from a theoretical algorithm description to running it on actual hardware via Azure Quantum today on Azure Friday. Hey friends, I'm Scott Hansman and it's Azure Friday and we're talking about quantum development at Azure Quantum today. And we've got Maria to tell me all about it. How are you? Hey Scott, I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm living the dream because I'm ready to add Quantum Programmer to my LinkedIn profile and you are the gateway to making that happen for us all watching this episode of Azure Friday. We're all gonna become quantum programmers today. That sounds like a solid plan for the day. <laughs> all right, so talk to me about quantum computing and uh, give me a sense of what we're trying to accomplish today. So uh, quantum computing, uh, speaking generally, is this uh, new computing paradigm that allows us to use uh, physical effects to perform computations that are more complicated than what we can do with our classical computers. At Microsoft Quantum here, we are working on making this uh, dream a reality, on building a full-stack quantum computer from the lowest layers in uh, hardware to the topmost layers, which is our quantum software, and of course, helping people learn quantum computing and become quantum programmers. Mm. It would be really inconvenient to have this quantum computer built and have literally nobody in the world know how to program it. So right. a waste of effort. Now, I'm not going to go and make a hello world application in quantum. That would be a waste of quantum, right? I don't necessarily want to go and make an, uh, a web application, but really it's about algorithms that are hard, like you said, using physical effects to do things that would be difficult to do otherwise. I wouldn't want to use quantum for something trivial, right? I'd want to use it for something hard or interesting. Yes, precisely. So when we're talking about quantum applications, we think about the quantum computer as a coprocessor. So it works together with classical computers to make sure that each of them it do, does things that it is best at. So the classical computer is going to do things like uh, talking to the user, talking to the database, to the cloud, classical cloud, if it needs to. And then the quantum computing is going to jump in when it's needed and solve that complicated problem. And then it's back to classical computers. It's going to analyze the results and do something else interesting with it. I see, I see. So um, as uh, to, to take an old uh, science fiction quote and kind of abuse it a little bit, any uh, additional layer of abstraction is indistinguishable from magic. So if you have a really nice layer of abstraction, you wrap it around and put a little function on it or a web API, you have a black box. Some black boxes could be classical computing and someone's for loop. And another black box could be a quantum algorithm. But from my perspective as a programmer, I might use C sharp to call Q-sharp and it hides that abstraction from me, it's magic and that's okay. Mm -hmm. We try not to think about it exactly as magic. Also, I definitely use this quote a lot more than I probably should <laughs> to kind of uh, avoid scaring people away. There is this unfortunate uh, public perception that quantum computing is complicated and confusing and scary. Uh, it's not. It's like under the hood, it's all just a bit of mess. 
matrices and matrix multiplication. Admittedly, this might sound scary for some people, mm -hmm. but it's not as scary as physics, at least for me. Yeah. Well, I think the way that you explained it was really well, that it's like a coprocessor. Like I'm old enough to remember when a 486SX did not have a floating point coprocessor because floating point was a hard problem. And then we added that coprocessor when we wanted to do that kind of work. And maybe one day in the future, we'll have some quantum coprocessors that won't be so big in, in the cloud, or maybe they'll just have blurred the lines and I'll be able to do some local work and I'll have my quantum qubit up in the cloud somewhere. And we'll just, it'll be part of our regular life and that'll be okay too. Yeah, this is the model we're looking at uh, right now. At this point, and probably for a decade or two more, quantum computers are going to be big and uh, expensive to maintain and really sensitive to stuff like external influences. So you're not going to put one in your laptop or even in your bedroom, unless you have a seriously luxurious bedroom. <laughs> so what okay. we're looking at right now is uh, the quantum device sitting somewhere in the lab, carefully protected from the external world. And uh, us, software engineers, accessing it uh, via cloud, an Azure cloud in our case. Okay, and uh, you've got a demo, so we'll maybe start thinking about algorithms and then work our way up to actually doing something real today? Yes, I will walk you through all the steps from showing you the code to actually running it on hardware. Let's do it. Okay. So let's look at our first step in the workflow, the quantum code. So um, before we dive into the workflow, the sequence looks something like this. You start with having a theoretical description of an algorithm. You can have it in a book, you can have it in a paper, um, you can come up with it yourself, but basically you'll know what you want to implement with your quantum code. So the first thing you do, you write quantum code for it. And then you um, run it locally, surprisingly. You don't hit quantum hardware right away. Instead, um, we have those uh, specialized uh, kind of programs, classical programs, called quantum simulators. What they do, they pretend to be a quantum uh, computer, a small one, but a very nice one. No noise, uh, no need to go to the cloud for it. Just something you can run on your computer. It seems counterintuitive because we're doing this to get advantage of quantum hardware, right? Not of classical. But it's actually very helpful to be able to run your program locally on a small example to make sure that it works correctly. So you can do things like write unit tests and basically make sure that your code does what you want it to do before you go all the way to the cloud with it. Mm -hmm. Might it not be several orders of magnitude slower and that's okay? So uh, quantum simulators are going to work on only very, very small uh, instances of your problem. For example, if we're talking about integer factorization, you can factor 15 on a simulator. Uh, you might give a shot to 21, but anything beyond that is just beyond the abilities of the simulator. 
Okay. So it is going to be a lot slower. You're completely correct. It's also going to take a lot of memory to simulate. So anything beyond 30 qubits is probably not going to run on your laptop. Mm -hmm. But for running it on those small instances, just to make sure that your code makes sense and that factoring 15 is not going to give you 19 and 32. Right. Uh, that's priceless. Also uh, for learning. When you nice. learn, you don't want to do programs with a thousand qubits. You want to do something small that you can reason about and you can write it on paper. Okay. So it's almost an algorithmic spell check, just making sure that your general structure is correct, testing each individual small kind of atom, mm -hmm. to mix my metaphors here, until we send the molecules up, you know, the larger structures up into the, uh, into the quantum mm -hmm. cloud. Yes, precisely. All right, cool. The next step after that, once you're comfortable with your program being correct, uh, we run resource estimation on it. It gives us the idea of how much resources on an actual quantum computer running this program would take. And it's a good idea to do this because if your quantum computer has 11 qubits and your program requires 22, um, you might want to optimize that a little bit. And then once we are done with program verification and resource estimation and we have convinced ourselves that our program is going to actually run on the hardware that we have, this is what you finally do. You go to the cloud and you run your program on the hardware. So this is going to be our workflow. And now let's dive into the actual code. All right. So we start with the problem that is going to be super simple. Uh, just to warn you upfront, it's not the problem that displays the power of quantum computing in its full force. We are going to be solving a problem of um, solving a modular equation. So we're going to have an equation uh, of form AX plus B equals zero modulus C. We're going to have our inputs A, B, and C, and we're going to be looking for X that solves this equation. Okay. This is a very simple problem, um, not particularly exciting, but it allows me to show you all the steps of the workflow and all the tools we are using to work with our quantum programs. If I pick something more fascinating like quantum chemistry, it would make it a lot harder to follow. Mm -hmm. okay. So uh, the quantum code for this uh, program is going to use a Grover search algorithm. And uh, I'm not assuming that everybody watching this show is familiar with it, but I also don't have the time to go into it, unfortunately. Um, when I teach, it, it usually takes like three-hour lecture for it to mm -hmm. do this algorithm justice, one of my okay. favorite ones. And but, but Grover's is a, it's a, search, a search algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're yes. figuring out within a probability this input that you say this input makes this output. Um, so what we are trying to do here is, uh, in general, with Grover search, we're trying to invert a function. Mm. So we are given a classical function that can be zero or one, and we uh, are looking for the input that makes it turn into one. Mm -hmm. So in this case, our function is going to be one if this equation is satisfied, and zero otherwise. Okay. Cool. The cool thing about Grover search algorithm is that it's uh, kind of a framework algorithm. 
The algorithm itself is always a fixed sequence of steps. So it starts here with this operation, and uh, this is the generic implementation of the algorithm. Hmm. So putting this in the classical terms for folks that are not quantum people, like I can go and do a brute force search, but then someone invented the bubble sort, uh, and I can do and sort through that. Like I think about my my different algorithms that have been created. So like a, I, I, I could do a brute force sort rather, pardon me, and then I could use a bubble sort or I can use different sorts and then apply those and build larger structures. Are you saying that I could build on top of Grover's algorithm and do other algorithms of my own and do more complicated problems? Mm -hmm. Yes. So on the one hand, we can use Grover to solve a bunch of problems as is. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we can use it as a building block for mm. more complicated algorithms. In this case, it's called amplitude amplification rather than Grover search as such. Cool. So this part of the code is fixed and it's uh, customizable by the problem definition that we have. And the problem definition is given here as the oracle. The oracle is a quantum term that uh, is basically a quantum implementation of the classical function that we are working with. Mm -hmm. This is basically how you uh, customize your Grover search to solve your problem and not just any problem. Mm -hmm. Cool. And this is actually the whole oracle for this problem. So this little piece of code uh, actually checks whether this the integer written in this quantum register is a solution to this equation. Uh, one thing you'll notice is that well, comments probably take a bit more in this piece of code than the actual code. On one hand, it's a well-documented code. On the other hand, we are taking advantage of the libraries here. Uh, quantum Development Kit has a lot of libraries in it. Mm -hmm. And these libraries, you can see API documentation for them, they basically take care of a lot of heavy lifting for you so that you don't need to think of how can we multiply two integers uh, with this module. You can just call a library function and you can move on to kind of the interesting part of your problem rather than just spend your time moving the bits around. Same way as we do with classical computing, right? Nobody writes assembly code these days. Hmm. It would be painful to write some things in assembly. Mm -hmm. So we use our libraries to keep our code nice and short and readable. And this is all problem customization we're going to do. Now, um, if we scroll a little bit down, this operation is going to be the entry point of our code. So this is the uh, kind of interface that we are going to expose to the classical uh, host to call our quantum program. So it's going to take our classical parameters A, B, and C, mm -hmm. and it's going to do everything quantum inside it, like figuring out the specific parameters it needs, like the number of iterations, and running the search and returning the results. Gotcha. Then we switch to the classical code. And uh, here um, you foreshadowed it really nicely. Uh, it's written in C Sharp. Mm. We can work with .NET languages or with Python. I will show you Python a little bit more, a bit later in the demo. But here our C Sharp code 
uses this quantum library that solves a modular equation for a specific problem. And this problem is we have an ISBN 10 number with one missing digit, and we want to recover that digit. It shows you how you take a classical problem formulation and then you transform it classically to get parameters for your quantum program. Mm -hmm. So basically, you do classical pre-processing. Then this little bit of code here calls the quantum code on the simulator mm -hmm. and gets the result. And then you do classical post-processing. You take the results of your quantum code and you do some classical work to it to make sure that it gives you the human readable result. That makes sense. And uh, here we are creating the quantum simulator. If we wanted to call Azure right from here, it would look differently. Okay. And we are just calling run on this Q-sharp operation, uh, passing it the simulator and the parameters. So very straightforward. And now we can run this code. You can see here that um, on the right, that we structure our quantum applications uh, kind of similarly to how we do with the classical ones. We have a library that does a lot of uh, like heavy lifting. We have an application that is an application that uses this library. And we have unit tests for it. So we have our application as our startup uh, project. And when we run it, it tells us what equation it solves, what this ISBN boils down to. And uh, it prints the recovered ISBN. And it's the correct one I checked. As a little Easter egg, it's uh, ISBN of Nielsen and Chuang book uh, about quantum computing. Basically, nice. the book that everybody is using for the past 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we ran our code on one example and it worked. Great. Uh, now, being good software engineers, we want to write unit tests for it because we all know that one input is not enough to verify that our program is correct. Mm -hmm. So, unit tests we can write in Q sharp or in C sharp, depending on what exactly we want to test. In this case, we have unit tests that check that our quantum oracle implements the classical functions that we want to work with. This is kind of the critical piece of the algorithm because. Um, the Grover search algorithm itself is kind of standard implementation. But the Oracle is the part that we make custom. So we want to be really sure that it matches our problem. Mm -hmm. um, I probably won't go deep into the details of what are we doing and how. But the idea is that we check all possible inputs and we check that the classical computation done by the classical function matches the results of done by the quantum oracle. Mm -hmm. And if they match, if you do a little mess, you can convince yourself that it's going to be correct on all possible inputs, including superpositions. Mm -hmm. In this instance here, though, you're doing a trivial algorithm, both classically and in quantum, and then comparing the two. How do you test for correctness when the classical algorithm can't run because it's too complicated? Excellent question. So uh, that really depends on the problem you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. 
for uh, grower search specifically, we are looking at problems which are hard to solve, but easy to verify. And so here, basically, to verify that our equation has this solution, we just need to substitute it in the function and check whether the, the result is what we need. Mm. So problems that have very complicated verification are likely to have complicated Oracle implementation as well, because Oracle implementations are usually more complicated than classical function implementations. And this means that it's not a good candidate to be solved using Rover Search. So if we have a complicated problem that we are struggling with verifying, we might have to get really clever with our unit tests. Good. That makes sense. That makes sense. Interesting. Okay. So you can write the unit tests in C sharp or in in Q in Q sharp as you did right then. Mm -hmm. And then um, how do you even estimate how much resources you want to use? I mean, you have n number of qubits, and it gets the more you use, I assume, the more money it costs, the more resources mm -hmm. it uses. This is of course a toy project, but if I was going to solve something complicated, how would I even start estimating my resources? Excellent question. This brings us right to the next part of the demo. Uh, I'm switching between the mediums here to show off our Jupyter Notebook support for Q-Sharp as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, here we are looking at the Q-Sharp Jupyter Notebook, which allows us both to define quantum code, which I'm not doing here, and to run it on a variety of simulators. So we can simulate uh, this uh, operation here and for different parameters than we used uh, in the Visual Studio project. And we're going to get our results here. And another tool we can use is our resource estimator that allows us to basically answer your question, figure out how much resources it's going to take. Under the hood, the resource estimator doesn't actually run your program. It doesn't try to predict what it's going to give. Instead, it's... Uh, walking through it step by step and just making note of things you want to do to your quantum program. Like whenever you want to allocate a qubit or to apply some gates to it, resource estimator doesn't do it. It just notes that you want to do it. So it basically counts the number of qubits it's going to take, this field qubit count. Um, it counts the number of different types of gates you want to do. The interesting ones is this CNOT number and depth. The CNOT number is um, an estimate of how many CNOT gates you need to apply, mm, basically how many times you need to entangle your qubits. And depth is um, how well you can pack your circuit, assuming that you can do some things in parallel. So these numbers are going to answer your questions. They're going to give you the estimate of the resources it's going to take to run on hardware, even if it cannot be simulated. Mm -hmm. And is eight a lot of qubits? Is that a number that I should be worried about? Uh, eight is not a lot of qubits, actually. Uh, okay. Our IonQ uh, hardware uh, device that we have in the cloud has 11 qubits. So the number of qubits doesn't worry me at all. What does worry me is uh, this number of C nodes and the depth of the circuit. So quantum computers, as you probably know, are 
still in their very early stages of development. So they cannot run long circuits. They cannot do a lot of things while still uh, being protected from noise. The noise starts creeping in pretty fast. And if you do the program that runs too long, um, it's just going to be ruined by noise. So the depth of the circuit is something that worries me. Uh, this basically tells us that we are not going to be able to run this program as is. But uh, I couldn't upset you that much, right, to promise you to run things on hardware and not actually do it. So what I did here is uh, I tweaked our code a little bit to simplify it. So I looked at the parts of the code that look complicated, and I figured out a way to write them in a simpler way. So in the long run, like 10, 20 years down the road, when we have our mature quantum computers, we're not going to, be to need to do this step. We're just going to write our code, and it's just going to run. Mm -hmm. But right now, uh, we're talking about uh, noisy devices, near-term devices. So we have to get crafty sometimes. So this is the way I tweaked the oracle for this problem to solve a much, much no narrower problem. Now it's going to solve an equation um, x plus uh, parameter b is divisible by 4. So equals 0 modulo 4. Mm -hmm. uh, this choice of parameters allows us to get rid of multiplication first to get rid of modular computations, because modulo 4 means you just perform your computations and you just drop whatever goes out of this two-qubit register. Mm -hmm. And this means that we only need to do addition and it becomes much, much easier. So it becomes just a couple of gates here instead of the general case um, modular multi multiplication and addition. You know what this makes me think about from a classical computing perspective is when we had low-powered machines in early days of computing, you might do a bit shift instead of a series of complicated higher-level structures mm -hmm. uh, because you could. And you're like, well, we all know that shifting everything four bits to the left does this instead of these. And now we don't think about those things anymore unless we want like super high efficiency. Uh, so, you know, we're at the assembly language level of these things, and you're kind of saying that the abstractions will start to fade away beneath us, but it's going to take years to do that. Yes. So we can write this high-level code right now, but we also have to be cognizant of what our quantum devices can do for us right now. Yeah. So we have to make some compromises. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. So now when we estimate the resources for this simplified algorithm. We can see that they're a lot less. So we reduced the number of C-nodes by uh, two orders of magnitude. And now they are double digits, so something we can actually run. And here we can peek at what our program, program looks like. Cool. Uh, in terms of gates, a lot of folks are just uh, familiar with the gate representation mm -hmm. rather than just high-level representations. So we can look at what gates exactly we are going to do. So uh, 
we have written our program, we assume we ensure that it's correct, and we estimated the resources it needs to run, and we even tweaked our program to make sure it doesn't take too much resources. What is left? Obviously, running on running it on real hardware. Precisely. So we're going to switch to another notebook, this time in Python. And I'm going to use it for two purposes, showing you how to work with Azure Quantum and showing how Python plays nicely with C-Sharp as well. So uh, we start by importing some libraries, of course, I've already done it. So we can um, run the simulation from Python again to make sure that uh, even from this medium, it still gives the same result. It does. And we can run the resource estimation from Python as well to make sure that, again, we're using the same parameters we used there and mm -hmm. our estimates are still the same. So we have three counts, three qubits in the program and 11 qubits on our INQ system. So we can do that. The next step uh, is going to look probably familiar to the folks who are familiar with Azure. And on this show, I imagine it's a much higher percentage than my uh, typical audience. So we are going to connect to Azure using our subscription and resource group and workspace uh, that we set up earlier. I already did uh, this connection before the show. Nobody likes to do two-factor authentication on camera. And we can see that this workspace has two targets. The simulator, the cloud simulator we can use to give our program another layer of checks, and the actual quantum device. So let's start with the simulator. We choose the target we want to use, and once we do that, we can submit the actual job. Okay, we can see that we have the target, it's active, and we can submit the job. Uh, the job submission looks as simple as picking the Q-sharp operation we want to run, passing the parameters, and passing this one extra parameter uh, called uh, the number of shots. Um, so the number of shots, what it does, quantum algorithms are, by their nature, very often probabilistic. And uh, if you run them just once, there is a chance that your single answer that you get is going to be incorrect, especially in the presence of noise. It is important. Mm -hmm. So what we do, we run this program multiple times. Uh, we call each time a shot. And we aggregate the data that comes back from all our shots. We look at the histogram of the results, and basically we pick the most likely outcome. So meanwhile, our job was submitted. We can check its status, see that it succeeded. And now we can look at its results. The results it's returning is basically um, a map that tells us which measurement results were obtained and uh, with what frequency, what percentage of those, those shots gave us this result. In this case, we're running on a simulator, everything's perfect, so we're only getting one result, which is our correct result. Mm -hmm. But we still can, you know, plot the histogram, just because we can. 
and um, extract the correct answer, the most frequent key of the histogram. This is just me showing off the post-processing we can do in Python with our quantum results. Now we have done every single verification I can think of. We can switch to hardware. And this is just as easy as switching to a different target. Everything else is the same. Submitting the job looks precisely the same as we do it for a simulator. I could have skipped defining the new uh, cell in the notebook and just ran the previous cell. Okay, so for this demo, um, I'm going to use the magic of television and pull the results of a hardware job that I ran uh, a bit earlier. I try not to hog the actual quantum device time just in case people are using it for actual research. So we have a status of our job that was running on hardware. You can see it's on QPU here. Mm -hmm. And it succeeded, of course. So the results here are, are going to look different. We know that only this result is correct. We saw it on our simulation. But now you see uh, a bunch of other results that are the effect of noise being present in our system. Fortunately, they are. Um, it's a shallow circuit, not a long one. And you can see that the noise doesn't mess up our results too much. We can still tell which result was correct with pretty high confidence. So here is our result. This is a very convoluted way to figure out that 2 plus 2 is divisible by 4. But the exciting part about this is that we just saw the quantum software development workflow end-to-end -end from the quantum code and running it locally to the results of running it on actual quantum hardware. Just, I think it's exciting. That's so cool. That's so cool. So quantum computing is becoming a real thing that that real people like me can do from the comfort of my my home here with QSharp and with the simulator. And that's the best thing, doing stuff from the comfort of your home. So where can people learn more about quantum on Azure? You can go to this website, azure.com slash quantum, where we have um, a lot of information about our program, the quantum development kit, and a lot of great learning resources that can help you get started with quantum programming yourself. All right, that was fantastic. We have learned from uh, going from a quantum algorithm description to running on actual hardware with QSharp, QDK, and Azure Quantum today on Azure Friday. Hey, thanks for watching this episode of Azure Friday. Now I need you to like it, comment on it, tell your friends, retweet it, watch more Azure Friday.